I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The Taoiseach sounds the alarm bells ahead of the October 22nd lifting of restrictions as COVID cases remain worryingly high. This is a, an, a, um, an alert to, to all of us um, to knuckle down, refocus um, on, on this virus because it hasn't gone away. The budget promises to restore our public services and repair our public finances, but will it help us catch up with the climbing cost of living? Carbon tax remains a bone of contention as the government attempts to reach our climate change targets and free contraception for young women seen as a good first step while free GP care for the under sevens threatens to push doctors to breaking point. Get in touch on Twitter with our hashtag TonightVMTV. First, we have breaking news coming to us tonight from Norway. At least four people have been killed and others injured by a man armed with a bow and arrow near the capital Oslo. The suspected attacker has since been arrested. An investigation is underway into the motive of that attack. Back home and Minister for Finance Pascal Donoghue promised that for those concerned with the rising cost of living, Budget 2022 will help you. Well, joining me in studio to discuss whether it did in fact deliver on that promise is Green Party TD and spokesperson for finance, Nasa Horrigan, Associate Professor in the School of Politics and International Relations in University College Dublin, Aidan Regan, and journalist and author Valerie Cox. But first, with today's new COVID cases reaching 2,066 with 408 people in hospital and 69 of them in ICU, there are concerns among senior health officials that the current trends of the virus could cast doubt over the 22nd of October reopening date. Well, for the latest on this now, I'm joined via Skype by political editor for the Irish Examiner, Daniel McConnell. And Danny, the Taoiseach saying there he couldn't... um, guarantee the reopening on the 22nd of October when we look at those figures and those rising case numbers. Is that the firm line from government tonight, real doubt now over next Friday's reopening date? There certainly is doubt about it, Claire, and both Leo Varadkar and Micheál Martin were addressing their parliamentary party meetings this evening and and gave voice to that that concern that certainly exists within government. I don't think, uh, bouncing this off uh, several cabinet sources tonight, I don't think they're quite ready at the stage to say, listen, the 22nd will, will not happen. Um, but I do think that the direction uh, is pretty clear that if the numbers continue to be where they are right now, there will have to be a decision taken in relation to the reopening of the remaining sectors of society on October 22nd. Because if it's a, it, you know, they just don't want to get a position when we're heading into winter that the virus you know, all of a sudden spikes out of control. Because the fundamental principle of all of our restrictions all the way along has been to try and prevent our hospital system from being overwhelmed 
the figure of about 400 cases was seen as a kind of a, a pretty significant marker. And we've, we've you know, gone over that um, this evening with, with, with the numbers. And with 70 in ICU, there are, there's about 280 ICU beds in total in the country. And with 70 of those taken up uh, purely with COVID cases, that obviously is going to put a considerable strain on the system. And the However, there is a political reality. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, Danny. Uh, does the politics around this and the decision making now is really key, isn't it? Because they're burnt by what happened last year when they reopened um, before Christmas in the manner in which they did. But there's also that pressure, isn't there? I mean, um, Catherine Martin will, will know all about it. The arts, the entertainment sector, a lot of people relying on this key reopening date next week. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, we were much slower in terms of our reopening than many other countries in Europe uh, uh, who've clearly taken the decision to live with COVID-19 rather than live in fear of it. Uh, and, and the basis and the defence for that from government was, listen, if we open, we will stay open. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a strong body of opinion within the government parties that, you know, there should be no going back to lockdown, notwithstanding the very high numbers, because death numbers are, are still relatively low. Yes, there's been an upsurge in deaths in, in recent days and weeks, but relatively speaking, we're in a much better place in terms of deaths than we have than most other countries are. So therefore, we should see the benefit of the vaccine rollout. You know, we're at over 90%. There's a strong body of opinion across parties that you know that that vaccine bonus needs to kick in now and allow the businesses that were furloughed and closed for so long to, to stay open. Um, but it's going to be a very tricky decision, particularly when we know uh, Michal Martin is a very, very cautious and conservative individual and he will certainly be guided by the very conservative hand of, of Dr. Tony Holland and, and Neffet, mm. uh, who have at times been criticised for taking a very hard line approach to, to the restrictions. Um, but again, given that vaccine wall that we have yeah. now of over 90%, um, as Ronan Glynn said today, like I mean, we need to see the benefit of that, I would think. Um, briefly, Danny, on the budget, um, the day after the announcement of Budget 2022 in the Parliamentary Party meetings tonight, how do you think the government has emerged from it? Yeah, there were no obvious banana skins, no kind of uh, expressions of ire or, or frustration or anger. Uh, in Fine Gael, actually, there was a lot of congratulations and kind of well job, well done. However, I will say the, the case of Adam, Adam Terry that was kind of voiced on radio yesterday and was articulated in the Dáil Chamber today has certainly put a different complexion on it. I think a lot of people are saying, you know, if you can't end and ease the pain of a 10-year-old boy and others like him with scoliosis, then the kind of a fiver on, on a pension here or there and extra kind of tidbits here and there really are meaningless. So um, I, I think that has overshadowed the, 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 the success because it is a quite a politically astute budget. It's a very budget. It's a very hard budget to criticise from a Sinn Féin or an opposition point of view. Um, but they are open to that charge that they kind of sought to give everything or something to everybody in the audience. Uh, and ultimately, you know, when you do that, you end up giving nothing to anybody. OK, Danny McConnell, uh, political editor with the Irish Examiner. Thanks for joining us tonight with that. Now, I'd like to come back to my panel and I want to go to you first, Nasa Horrigan. Just what we're hearing tonight about these rising COVID figures that have risen quite a bit in the past week and the concern that's obviously there from government on it. Um, when we hear really what, what the government will be looking at are those hospital numbers mm -hmm. and the number of people in ICU. And Ronan Glynn pointing today to the number of unvaccinated, the 370,000 people unvaccinated having that disproportionate impact um, on how we're handling COVID-19. Isn't it the case that our health system just can't handle the cases now and that's what's really putting the reopening into jeopardy here? 
Well, I think the strategy has always been to try and protect our health service as much as possible from being overloaded. Uh, we are facing into winter, so cases were likely to go up. I'm, I think everybody is very much hoping, hoping that, that those cases going over 2,000 and the hospitalizations going over 400 is, is a spike and that we will see it come down over the next few days. I think n no decision will be made lightly. And certainly, um, if there is a reconsideration of that October 22nd date, it'll be around perhaps continuing current restrictions, I think given the, the level of vaccination, notwithstanding those people who haven't been vaccinated, and I would urge anyone who isn't vaccinated to please, please go and do that. But notwithstanding that, given the level of in incredibly you know, high uptake that we've had in Ireland in, in terms of vaccination, we're not looking yet at anything like a lockdown. Okay. We'll see what happens there. Obviously, this is this is a, a developing story in terms of those case numbers and, and what public health officials um, recommend on that front. Um, on the budget, Aidan, um, we heard from Danny there about the government trying to give a little bit to everyone and did they succeed in pleasing anyone in the process? It has been dubbed the Fiverr budget. Um, but what do you think the government were aiming to do here against this uh, backdrop of an economic rebound? So we're hearing... Uh, while also managing that rising inflation? Yeah, I think it, it seems to me that the government were trying to signal that things are going to improve, and that we're aiming for a strong recovery. The public finances are in a very healthy position. They're in a position, I think, that most EU countries would envy. Most of that is driven by a sharper increase in corporate tax revenue. Uh, so I think the government, and I think... You know, Pascal Dunahoo in particular would have been quite happy uh, about the negotiations around this budget. Could they have done a lot more? Yes, of course. Could they have done a lot less? Yes. So I think the muted response that you're getting from the opposition, I think it's a, in public opinion more generally, is a function of the fact that most people knew what was coming anyway. And also that, you know, there is a little bit in there for everybody to be just about pleased, but not enough actually to solve those deeper structural issues could say now there, there is a little bit for everyone, mm. but pensioners may have expected more in terms of what, what we're going to see about, you know, the rising cost of living, the fuel prices uh, to, to offset a little bit uh, the, the rising cost of living that we're seeing and the winter that we're headed into. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the government have framed this as a cost of living budget. It's not really because cost of living is a measurement that's very different to inflation. So I think what the government are trying to do here with the increase in welfare payments, with adjusting the income tax bans, etc., is to cover basically the inflation increase. That if you expect 2.5%, 3% inflation growth, that's going to about cover you, right? So the pensions will be just about covered. Cost of living is basically how far your money travels in the economy in terms of purchasing big things like health, education, housing, childcare. So I think it's kind of dangerous for the government to frame this as a cost of living budget because everybody knows the cost of living is particularly high in this country, in the city, in Dublin City in particular. So it might just about cover and inflation. And has been for a long and time. And has been for a long regardless time. Regardless of inflation. Exactly. And to tackle those issues uh, is much more difficult and much more structural. Um, Valerie, your take on, on what you yeah. saw the government delivered to, to older people, um, to social welfare recipients, the sort of five are being being handed about, will, will it make a difference? Because I know you've expressed real concern about how, what a tough winter it could be for pensioners. Yeah, I mean, as you said, it's raining fivers, but it's monopoly money, really, because we've done nothing structural for older people. I mean, giving people fivers in every direction, a little bit here, a little bit there, all that is doing is fending off public anger.
because we've done nothing about the things that really matter to older people. And for example, um, if we look at the number of people that we're trying to keep in their own homes and you want to remain there and you do not have the supports to be there and end up so many of them either in hospital or nursing homes, which is costing the state millions. Whereas with a small bit of support, maybe they could be staying in their own homes. There was absolutely nothing about that, which I thought was absolutely appalling. Um, you know, giving an elderly person a fiver on their pension. I mean, you wouldn't give that to a child's their first communion these days. They'd be looking at you. A fiver is nothing. And it's, I, I actually think it's an insult, you know. Um, I also think that an awful lot of older people, we don't think about this sector, they're living in rental properties. And rents are going up, 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 as you know. Um, landlords are trying to get people out because they maybe want to get a family in and get more money from them. There is no support for them in this at all. Yeah, um, look, that's a big thing that has been said. The big issues of the day, NASA, around housing, around childcare, around those, those rents, though, within the housing crisis, the, ri the rising rents, nothing was done there. And that a fiver here and there is going to make very little difference to people's lives. Well, I would say that there was a significant um, uh, intervention on childcare that we are trying to change that market and stabilise it. Now, now, no difference in fees well, well, at all to yeah. parents until minimum next September. Well, the two issues are, that, are the quality of employment and, and the fees. And so, you know, we need that structural change being, uh, that, that's an effort towards structural change and that serious investment. What I would say is that, you know, taken as a fiver on its own, it, it might not seem like it will cover. And I agree actually with, with Aidan that certainly the income tax changes were around um, addressing that issue of inflation. But if you look at that lower 30% um, of uh, lower income households, if you add in, let's say you are a pensioner who is getting the living alone allowance and the fuel allowance, you're actually getting 13 euro extra every week. It's kind of a, a strategy to lift all boats so that we can cover as many people in as many ways well, as that possible. that even help? Look, we are facing into an unprecedented winter in terms of um, fuel costs and in terms of cost of living. We are very, very worried about inflation. However, having said that, we've just had a conversation around COVID and is COVID coming back and are we going to see new restrictions? We've put aside four billion of a contingency mm. fund for that. We're not out of the woods on that yet. We have had unprecedented spending in the last 18 months on keeping people you know, on an even keel during that crisis. It, it, you know, that we're not over that argument yeah. yet. We're not through that yet. And so we do need yes. to be mindful of that. Yeah. I mean, how do you tackle, though, the issues that you were talking about there, Aidan, and we were talking about, you know, the big investment that needs to be made rather than, you could say it's an exercise in politics, this annual handing out of a bit of extra money here and there. Um, when you're looking at, at, at public investment and then what the government are saying about we can't spend more than the EU will allow, we have to keep within certain fiscal rules around this, then how do you make those big dents, those big public investments now in areas like housing and childcare, can it be done that will actually make a real difference to people in annual budgets? I think it can be done, but it takes a much longer time. Uh, frame and much longer time horizon. I mean, the National Development Plan, the capital investment program is obviously aimed over a much longer time period. The difficulty with that is, of course, you can signal that that's where we're going, but the future is so indeterminate and uncertain, you don't know what's going to happen next year or the year after. 
Um, but to answer the question, can the government afford it? Is the finance available to do these big structural changes? I would answer that question, yes. Uh, you know, the, the, the broader international monetary environment does allow it. If the EU fiscal rule says that you can't generate new public investments to improve public infrastructure, I'm not quite sure that's true. And if they are true and the EU does say you can't do it, well, I'm not sure they should be listened to, quite frankly. So there are fiscal rules in place that have been suspended. There's a negotiation about whether they should come back and what form should they come back, I think, is what's likely to take place over the next 24 months. But the finance is there, and I think that's the crucial difference today vis-a-vis -vis the past few years. But the government are playing catch-up. I mean, you had nearly a decade of austerity. Then you had subsequent years of very kind of prudent fiscal management. Now you're in a position to make those investments which are tackling issues that really should have been solved or at least the beginning of that 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, and that's the big question, isn't it, Valerie? When we looked at the 520 million euro in tax breaks, um, changes to income tax, that will benefit people a little bit in the pocket. Would people prefer to see that money being ploughed into something like childcare, into housing and other areas, yeah. rather than seeing that bit more in their back pocket? I absolutely think you're right, because I think we would all give up the little bits of the income tax or whatever it is to see something major being done to sort out housing or whatever. And one case in point, carers. I mean, my goodness, we gave a million extra hours to carers. It's nothing because there's 7,000 people on the waiting list at the moment. And not only that, it doesn't kick in till January. It's means tested. I mean, th there are thousands of people living lives of quiet desperation while we're tinkering with a little bit here and there. And I think the only way that we should have tackled this budget was to take on the major issues, not all of them at the one time, maybe housing, maybe carers, get that sorted. And then, you know, a lot of these people... I suppose the government would say, look, we have the Housing for All plan. We are trying to implement big changes around the area of childcare. All of this takes time. It's a plan, though, Claire, and it's not enough. It's all too slow. I mean, for example, if you look at the um, GPs, um, the new thing for kids, where they're, they're taking kids now up to seven. Do you know it took them five, five years to get from five years of age to seven years of age? So, you know, if we're going to wait another five years to get to the kids who are nine years of age, it's ridiculous. OK, well, we're going to get another angle on, on it now, and that's the student angle and, and where they felt it went right and wrong for them in this budget. Well, joining me via Skype is Communications and Engagement Officer for um, the UCC Students' Union, Maeve Richardson. And Maeve, last time we were talking to you, um, the college there had launched a food bank for students who simply couldn't afford food, couldn't afford to feed themselves in a fairly desperate situation. What will they be saying about this budget? What they're going to be saying about this budget is that it was inching towards progress but failed to meet its goals. As The same as many other groups among the country, we also felt that we were being handed fivers and whatnot rather than you know dealing with the issues. The government has decided to deal with some of the symptoms of Irish society but not to actually engage with the problems, i.e. high rents, high costs of attending college and whatnot. What good is a half-price leap car journey when you are commuting six hours from one end of the country to the other to attend college? Um, there was an extension. There was the, as you say, that the half-price transport was um, one little sell from government. There was also the Susie grants that they were making a big play of. Will that make a difference to many students? It'll make a small difference. Again, inching towards progress, two hundred euros on top of the maintenance grant doesn't even cover half of a month's rent in Dublin or Cork. So again, right direction, but it's not going to resolve anything. We're not back at the pre-2011 levels yet. 
in order to cover CZ ground correctly to support our students. We also welcome the adjacency rate going down from 45 kilometres to 30 kilometres. That should help some student commuters, but again, mm. fall short. We're paying €3,000 in fees, which is the highest in the EU. OK, um, and on another matter, because there was a protest that took place outside Dublin City Council offices over comments made by uh, the chief executive of Owen Keegan. He apologised for those comments. Uh, he said in a letter to UCD Students' Union about, uh, you know, student accommodation that they were looking for. He said the union should become developers to provide low-cost accommodation for their members. Now, he has apologised for that. He said it was sarcastic and uh, if offence was caused then he was sorry about that. Uh, what do you think of that general idea that you can be a bit sarcastic about a problem that's affecting so many people, so many of your fe fellow students right up and down the country, not just in Dublin, as we know? I think there is always a place for sarcasm, but the expectation of students' unions having the capacity to be property developers is frankly insulting. Student unions are doing their best to support their students and allocating them accommodation where they can get it. But this just isn't good enough. There is not enough public housing and affordable housing for students. Also, we saw that there was four billion allocated for housing in the housing for all policy. None of this was allocated for purpose-built student accommodation. And this frankly isn't good enough. Again, getting those fibers and everything like that doesn't assist students in any way in trying to get affordable accommodation or does not support commuters in having less okay. extensive journeys. Okay, Maeve Richardson from UCC, thank you for joining us tonight with your views on that. Nasi, you heard what Maeve had to say there. Um, just on the comments about what Owen Keegan made, and he said he was being sarcastic when he said that students' unions should um, become property developers, essentially. Like, that's beyond not helpful in yeah. this uh, current situation, this crisis that are facing people right up and down the country, students and non-students alike when it comes to rents and finding accommodation. Yeah, it, it is incredibly unhelpful, and you know, for somebody in his position to 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 be, be being sarcastic in that way is probably ill-advised. It's definitely ill-advised. Look, I. I, I honestly can't sit here and say that I agree completely with Fina Gale and Fina Fall on, on their policies on housing. I think that that's kind of um, well publicised. But I do think that, you know, in terms of the budget... Um, what would you do the, differently? Well, the, I would like to see a rent freeze, but I'm not sure that's a budgetary measure. That's actually not a budgetary measure. And the only, I suppose, aspect of it that you would include in a budget is... is um, you know, some kind of a tax credit, perhaps, or uh, you could give a month's rent, for example. I mean, but, but in reality, what that would do is increase rent. Does it matter whether it's announced yesterday or was announced, you know, two weeks ago, two months ago, tomorrow? Well, in fairness, we have had a number of measures brought in to deal with high rents over the last few years, or over the last 12 months, I believe it's um, four particular measures. Um, and when questioned they're about it yesterday, the, they're not working. And when questioned about it yesterday, the minister did say that he was going to look at at how to, to, how to um, implement more rent freezes in the next few months. And I would welcome that. And we will be putting pressure yeah. on, on the minister to, to you know, come up with some responses on that because certainly students... Right. There's 10,000 units of student housing in Dublin built in the last few years, but they're just not affordable. No, they're not affordable and they're not. They're actually then being used for uh, other reasons other than for student living. Um, Aidan, there's this reluctance in government because they had the opportunity to actually make a statement to help people who are renting, but then there was nothing that came yesterday. What's the reluctance about freezing rents? I suppose the reluctance is, as, as Nessa was touching on, the fear that you're going to actually indirectly drive up rents, that you might actually end up constricting 
uh, the increased availability of homes and that you'll end up creating a perverse incentive. I'm not... But that land, private landlords will want out. Or, or as soon as you begin to signal that it's going to happen, the rents will go up very quickly before you have a chance to even implement it. So there's a whole time scale issue. It's how do you communicate this? How do you signal it? Can you do it publicly? You'd have to almost do it privately. You'd have to announce it in the morning before people, landlords, had a chance to adjust, etc. So I think it is a difficult issue, but that's not to say that you can't do it or you shouldn't do it. And it's not to say that other cities have not adopted this approach. I was going to say, how, how are they doing? they're doing it elsewhere. Yeah, it has been done elsewhere. It can be done. It seems to me, though, the idea that central government is in a position to do this, I think it's more reflective of the initial conversation that local government, the local city councils, are just not in a position to show any leadership on this. And I think it's so blindingly obvious to everybody who lives in Dublin, there is no leadership in Dublin City Council on housing. And that's the fundamental problem. And why is there not, for example, if you don't want to talk about issues around housing, the most obvious thing to do in the budget yesterday was whack a pretty hefty tax on derelict, derelict uh, houses. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that is coming, that is coming, sorry, in spring 2022 when the LPT, the revised LPT, um, they're waiting for the wait receipts of that spring. and spring why do we have to wait till next spring? Because I mean, we've just completely reorganised the local property tax and that is how you register those properties. But why can't we do it now in the same way that we can put money on petrol or cigarettes overnight? I mean, all it takes is a bit of planning and if they could have been working on it for the months coming up to the budget. I mean, do you agree with that, with having to wait for it? Well, I've been waiting for the, the review of the local property tax for, for many, many months since the negotiations of the government. And it is quite a complex area. And, I, and even the review that we've had and the changes to the local property tax aren't, you know, as um, they haven't gone as far as I would have liked. So I'm prepared okay. to wait, wait for, for the, the vacant property tax because I think it will be really, really useful. OK, we're going to have to leave it there. That's all we have time for. My thanks to Maeve Richardson, who joined us via Skype, Aidan Regan and Valerie Cox. NASA Horrigan will be staying with us. And after the break, Budget 2022 sees a rise in carbon tax and the agricultural industry feels the pressure of climate targets. Stay with us. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back. Now, Green Party TD Nasa Horrigan is still with us and I'm joined by journalist John Gibbons and independent TD Michael Healy-Ray. Now, Minister Eamon Ryan has confirmed that Ireland's first carbon budget will be unveiled in the coming weeks, which will lead to carbon emission limits being applied in key sectors of the economy for the first time. Not only will we see that rise in carbon tax, but the agricultural industry is set for some radical changes. Um, well, for more on this, we've, we're joined by our panel. John, I want to come to you first and just referring to the budget and what Pascal 
Michael Donoghue stood up and said the world is burning, announcing that 750 uh, a tonne uh, increase in carbon tax. He says it's the single most effective tool in driving change on climate. Is he right? I think it's one tool in the toolkit. There's no question about it. But the whole range of instruments are required to actually begin to address climate. Uh, a carbon tax, in, in my opinion, is the right direction to go. And I think what's important about this, and this has been set down over the last number of years, is that we have a clear pathway where we're going to increase carbon tax by 750 a tonne every year to 2030. Now that brings us to 100 euros a tonne by then. What that gives the market, the public, businesses, farmers is certainty. It means they know the direction of travel on, on carbon tax. It means that we begin to squeeze out the carbon intensive sectors and then we also raise valuable funding to support and to, to if you like, incubate the low carbon transition. And a carbon tax, as I said, it's one instrument. It's not the only instrument, but it's certainly a good start. I would say as well that having, having described the world as, as burning, uh, I would have expected a, a more incendiary budget yesterday. As in, what would you have liked to see? A great deal more. I mean, we, the, 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 the Oireachtas declared a climate and biodiversity emergency in March 2019. That is two and a half years ago. We have still not seen the, the phase shift in political response in any way commensurate with the climate emergency. And this is what I, I see. And we even see this today. The biodiversity um, conference is ongoing in uh, China and our minister has been involved in that. Uh, we have a biodiversity emergency capable of bringing down civilization. We have a climate emergency capable of bringing down civilization. And we are still treating this in an incrementalist way. A few euros here, a little bit of a change here. At some point, we're going to have to get on top of this crisis. If we don't, this crisis is going to put us all out of business. OK, NASA, it's incremental. It's not ambitious enough if we really want to to you know, get to grips on what is a, a global emergency. Well, look, as a, as a Green Party TD, I would have liked huge amounts of money in the budget for this, but we're in a coalition government and we have to negotiate for what we get. So when Pascal says we, the world is burning, does he believe we did, it? We, we did get some very significant wins. We got things like two, over 200 million for retrofit. Um, we got 47 million for the MPWS, which is our national parks, um, 5 million for biodiversity projects on farms. Um, so we will start to see serious changes um, in the way we do things. But I have to say, and I keep saying this the last few days, is that for the Greens, you know, the budget is one moment in the year, but the, the carbon budget is coming and that's an incredibly important moment as well. Um, and we, we did have a number of very significant wins in the National Development Plan. So for us, th this is a story of the year of how we move through and how we get real change. And it's really important that as well as the things like 200 million for retrofit and the money for biodiversity, we also th see things like extra 5 million for organic farming, which means that we can reach out to communities who need to be brought with us through this change. Okay, uh, Michael Healy-Ray, this is one step. We had the carbon tax announced, but there's a carbon budget on the way. Your thoughts on what the government announced and how it's going to impact on people? I'm doing my best to contain myself with some of what I'm after hearing here tonight. A few euros here and there. I'll tell you how many euros it is. It's nine and a half billion euros of additional taxation on people who are already crucified. You have to see and realise what this is meaning to people when they want to heat their homes, pay their ESP bills, take their cars or their vans out and go to work. 
people in rural areas are going to be more adversely affected by this than anywhere else because we don't have public transport. The government are praising themselves and clapping themselves on, the back, on their back for saying that they're going to take money from this taxation. And what are they going to do with it? Provide more uh, buses and more public transport in our okay. cities. What about the people living in rural areas that have to get up in the morning and sit into some type of a vehicle and go to work? And the cost of that travel is so much. Everything is delivered by road, everything. So the cost of everything is do? going to go I mean, there are targets and they're there for a reason and we have to stick the, by them. So, the, so how do you, how do you attack? Are no, you saying ignore it altogether and no, just no, 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 go against the rules on no, this one? What I've said always is I'm not a climate change denier, no way in the world. But if the government were serious and if the Green Party were serious, what's the first thing they do? They'd say, yes, retrofitting homes, insulating homes. They'd reduce the VAT that's on insulation products. Right. What has happened to the insulation products? They've more than doubled and in some cases tripled in cost. Yeah, what would you say? And, and then uh. anybody looking for a grant, one of your famous grants, Nessa, I can show you a book full of people who are waiting over two years that have applied, done their job diligently, older people who are entitled to assistance, who are entitled to grants. They say, right, we better do the job in the house. They apply for the grant and they're told, well, wait now two years. So what are they to do? Suck yeah. their thumbs for two years and wait for you to yeah. come along and give Look, them a grant? There's a bit to unpack in that. I think what we there's began... There's a lot to unpack. There's a lot to unpack but, in that. But, I think but, what we began it's with... factual. Wait, wait, I think what we began with was the carbon tax, I, I believe you're referring to. And, you know, ju just so, people are, just so euros, yes. people are clear, like there is, there has been a huge increase in, in the cost of fuel and the cost of energy. Now, the carbon tax that you heard in the budget for home heating oil is actually not going to kick in until May 2022. But for your petrol, for your diesel, you are going to see that. You're probably seeing that today. Really? However, yes. the increase in petrol, for example, in a litre, that's 26 cent. Two, two cent of that is the carbon tax. So it's less than 10% is actually the carbon tax. I know it's a good story for the opposition to say, oh, okay. it's the carbon tax and the Greens, but actually okay. that's not what's pushing it up. It's a geopolitical issue with Russia. And that's what's oh. pushing up the cost Thanks. of petrol for people. Yes. And can I just finish on this point? Sorry, one second now. I, I am a proponent of the carbon dividend to give it back to people. However, what we did do is manage to ring fence the funds from carbon tax. And that means this year, when, car when energy prices are going way up through the roof, and we had no idea that that was going to happen, we actually have a ring fenced fund to protect 30% of households. We would never have had that money except that we have the carbon tax. We can actually pay people extra money through the fuel allowance, and all of that ring fence funding is coming from the carbon tax. No, what you have to, you, if I'm listening that to. That wouldn't have if, happened. If I'm listening to rubbish, I have to call it out for what it is. You're collecting nine and a half billion euros from people, okay. making it more expensive. We're talking than, about the no, no, increase. just, just leave me finish. And what are you doing then? You're going to give them back three billion to combat fuel poverty. Yeah. So you're we're admitting you're impoverishing. The poorest household, Michael. No, we're the poorest household. What are you doing And actually, it's redistributive. You're, because no, no. it's not everybody. You're it's not the guy. Them. It's not the man who's, who's, who's driving around in his BMW. It's the person who can't heat their home who's going to gain. I'm talking about a person with a goddamn van that he's looking to under him going to work or he or she in the morning and, and look at the cost. A hundred euros of fuel. That's pushing that up. No, no. I'm going to make this point. A hundred euros okay. of fuel 57 euros of that goes to the government but in tax. we're talking about the increase. Okay. Deny that. I'd like to bring you in here. Absolutely. And on that, so it should. If you take the price of 20 cigarettes and you look at the proportion of tax in that, it's very high as well. And there's a very good reason for that because we tax items like cigarettes because 
we want to use less of them. We tax them in order to discourage the use of them. In the case of fossil fuels, we're currently, as a country, sending six billion euros abroad every year out of our bottom line in this country to buy fossil fuels, import fossil fuels that are damaging our local environment, that are putting people in hospital with health impacts. And what we need to move towards quickly is not to be controlled by Russia or anybody else with their, their hand on the gas yes. bigot, but it is instead to transition to, it's the transition, to renewable though, and energy. How, quick, how quickly Here, that's it, all it, happening. It can't all happen miraculously, it? but as long as you have people pretending that we aren't in a climate emergency and we don't need to make this transition, then we continue to get this, this tailwind pulling us back, saying, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do the other. Now, with the greatest of respect, Michael is that tailwind right behind us, pulling us back, trying to prevent the progress that we need. No, because I tell the truth. And I'm going to, I'm going to well, knock you one thing. No, no, I'm going to tell one thing. No, I'm going to knock it on the head what you just said there because it sounded very fanciful. The fossil fuels that are uh, hurting people's health. Go down to County Kerry or go over to Clare or go to Galway and tell them. Now, I will. I agree. Uh, the smog will say that you had in places like Dublin when you had smoky coal and, and things like that. Yes, but hold on now one second. Irish towns hold on now one second. Smog Come down to Kerry and tell me that a person below in Waterville tonight that's watch, watching this programme that's burning a bit of turf, tell them that they're damaging somebody's health. Michael, when you're talking rubbish, have, it has to be called out for what it is. And that they're child, making people sick. We have some sick. of the highest level of child asthma in the world. Children in this and, country and are, have some of the are, highest levels of child Are you blaming somebody tonight with a turf fire? I am blaming our dirty, dirty air. What we're blaming is the burning of particulate emissions, and whether it's from like, turf or whether it's from diesel. You're all gone soft right? in the head. Honestly, uh, Michael, you... care you, about children's no, health? No, yes, we are. I'm gone soft. You've gone soft in the you're head. Soft. And what you're doing okay. is you're painting I, the whole country as though that these people are criminals. These people are doing this. Nobody is doing that. I want to ask about what's coming down the line for farmers. Now, they're not particularly happy. They are saying that uh, the industry won't be offered up as the sacrificial lamb to the Green Party. What are we expecting to see, um, John, particularly for the agriculture sector, that in, in order to get in line with our green agenda? OK, let's, let's do this very quickly. By 2030, we need to cut emissions across all sectors in Ireland by 51%. That's policy, that's where we're at. Now, at the moment, the most that agriculture has put on the table, depending on who you ask, is somewhere between 10 and 15%. If that remains the case, that means everybody else in Ireland is going to have to up their game and, we're, and every other sector is going to have to pitch in over 70%. Now, you and I know that that's impossible. So the question is not, is agriculture the sacrificial lamb? Is it instead the, 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 the sector that doesn't bear its share, that doesn't do its fair share. And nobody is asking any sector in this country to do anything other than its fair share. Agriculture contributes in Ireland 34% of our emissions, which is obviously very high. There are, there are good reasons for that. Our style of agriculture is extremely emissions intensive yep. because it's a livestock model. And I want to we need to transition We're producing that. beef. For God's sake, again, will you listen to what we're after saying? Do you, what the Greens are, are promoting is having our national herd. They tried to deny that's it all along, but now that anywhere. is coming out as being that's the truth. While we're doing that, oh. 
in South America, they're Rubbish going to increase. Nasa. They're going to increase their herd by 27 million Michael, head if, of cattle. If Michael that is, is concerned effect. about the about the the forests of South America, I presume then he'll join with me tonight in calling for a ban on the import of the three to five million tons of animal feeds that Ireland imports from areas would, like South America. Would, would you be with me on that, Michael? And what would you be with me in calling this out? What sort of rubbish was it to shut down Bornemona producing peat and then bring in okay. 4,000 tons of it last month from Lafayette? Well, would you like to deny no, that? No, 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 I would no, actually no, like please. to answer Sorry. it. Yeah, no, that's fine. I just on the issue that's a, that, regarding farmers and what they're expecting down the line and, and this idea that they're a sacrificial lamb to the Greens, what would you say to farmers out there tonight who, who are worried about what might be happening and what needs to be done and how you sell that to them essentially? Well, I think farmers want the same thing that I want, which is that they can make a living and they can have a proper livelihood, which they don't right now, and that we can have some proper bi biodiversity and that our lakes and rivers wouldn't be polluted. I think we're all on that team. We all want to see that happen, and we should be using our funds to make that happen. OK, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to John Gibbons and Michael Healy-Ray. Nasa Horgan will be staying with us. And after the break, Dr Ilona Duffy reacts to plans to extend free GP care to the under sevens. Welcome back. Green Party TD Nasa Horrigan is still with me in studio and joining me via Skype is GP Alona Duffy. Before we discuss some of the budget announcement around health, we're hearing again today of very high COVID cases, Alona. Does this reflect what you've been seeing in your own GP practice? Unfortunately, it does. For the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing day on day repeated positive COVID tests uh, coming back to our practice. And we know we're not getting all of the positive results. So those patients who self-refer, we don't get those results. So we're, we're limited to only the ones that we've referred. But often when we're ringing patients to tell them you have a positive result and talk to them about the isolation period, etc., they're saying, we know all of this, the whole family is positive, or we know all of this because our workplace is positive. So definitely on the ground, we are seeing the rise in the cases again. Given that very high vaccine uptake that we have in this country, the huge compliance around the rollout of the programme, what do you think accounts for this rise, Alona? Anecdotally, what do you figure may be happening here? Well, we know that without the vaccine, the figures would be much, much worse. So number one, those who are unvaccinated are obviously more likely to become infected. And when they become infected, they will tend to spread the virus more because they'll have higher viral loads. Those people who are vaccinated tend to not be as sick, but also they tend not to be as infectious. So that's a bonus for them. But definitely at the moment, we're seeing not only people who've had COVID before becoming reinfected, but also those who have been vaccinated, having had both vaccines, also becoming infected. Now, luckily, most of our patients haven't been particularly ill if they've been vaccinated, but we've had a couple of patients who have been admitted to hospital. So it goes back to the same message. If you're not vaccinated, you should be vaccinated, not only to protect yourself, but to protect those around you who are vulnerable, the older members of our community and those with underlying health conditions. They are still at risk if they meet you and you're unvaccinated and have COVID. And of course, key to all that are those hospital numbers. That's really what they'll be looking at. Um, just onto the measures that were announced in the budget, um, one of the headlines, free GP care for under sixes and under sevens. What do you make of that in terms of what you're already dealing with 
in your surgery in terms of workload? Is it something that doctors are welcoming as part of this plan, of course, to extend it um, to all under 12s uh, as part of the greater plan for, for freer public health care? I think it's hugely disappointing to see that this government have yet again used GPs as their bargaining tool. And it's a bit like a free giveaway. If they want votes, they just seem to think that they can hand out medical cards to all kinds of groups. Yet uh, it's clear they haven't listened to any of the media reports over the last few weeks talking about the massive crisis in general practice where many people around the country have no GP because um, there just are no GPs for them. They can't sign on with the practice. And those who have a GP are daily facing the challenge of being seen in a timely fashion. The same day service has been under threat for the last few years and we now know that that's almost gone. We know that 30% of our GP workforce and those tend to be the GPs who are working full time, working 11 and 12 hour days are going to retire in less than five years and they're not going to be replaced. Now, I know the government are going to say they'll come out with the, the same old mantra, which is, oh, we've increased the number of training positions for GPs. We're working hard at it. We've put a lot of money into general practice. The sad reality is that despite repeated uh, repeated advice from both our, the IMO and the ICGP and other groups that we aren't even training enough GPs to replace the retirements, much less create enough new GP posts to deal with the increased demand because of increased population and increased population needs. So the new money that's come to general practice is for new work and it's not enticing people into general practice. Our younger doctors are voting with their feet and saying, this is not a career I want when I know I can't be guaranteed sick leave. I can't be guaranteed a maternity leave. I can't be guaranteed annual leave. And I think COVID has proven that where GPs have faced having no annual leave for over a year at a time. OK, GP Alona Duffy, thank you so much for joining us tonight um, with your view on that. Thank you. I just want to bring you some tweets as well that have come in on that very matter. Uh, GPs are humans, not robots. This will accelerate uh, GP burnout. That's what someone is saying about this plan uh, to roll out uh, free GP care for seven-year-olds and six-year-olds. We are sleepwalking into a healthcare disaster, says someone else. GPs and nurses are in despair and they are leaving the profession. NASA, a bargaining tool, uh, a nice political announcement, but the reality is it's a system that's hugely under pressure and can't take on this extra workload. Well, it is a system that's under pressure and I sit on the health committee and we have heard from, from GPs that their contracts and their conditions are just, you know, they're not affecting retention within the sector and that we're losing a huge amount of GPs and a lot of younger younger doctors just don't want to go into it. So I, I think it is an issue. Obviously, we do want to move towards the, the free GP care for under 12s eventually and that this is an incremental move towards that. But I, 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 well... I mean, I have been in conversation with the minister that, that we do need further dialogue with the GPs. There, there isn't actually a, a timeline as a, a announced yet for this measure, but I do think it's really important that we move towards better care for children. For every child, you know, and, and I know that there's um, been some discussion around people using appointments that they don't need, but I, I think really the, the more common thing is that people, you know, take chances and don't bring their children to the doctor when they need to because of the very, you know, heavy cost that it is for, for lower income households. So I, I do think it is a progressive measure. Yeah, it's progressive, but whether it can actually be achieved is the big thing. What Ilona was saying there is that, you know, there are GPs retiring, um, that they, there's a shortage of GPs already in the system. You won't be able to train them up quickly enough. They won't come into the job because of the terms and conditions as they see it not being worth their while. So is it possible to achieve this despite good intentions? 
Well, I don't think good intentions are enough that we definitely need to focus on it and ensure that we are providing um, you know, working conditions that, that suit GPs and that are attractive to them. I do also have a concern around um, particular communities that have, you know, very low levels of GP cover. You see that in my own constituency of Dublin Central, that you'd, you'd have very few GPs covering a very large population. Mm -hmm. And we have seen a number of pilot projects um, that would address that, that would help with set the costs of setting up offices, that would, would help with the costs of staffing. So, so there are attempts being made to, to, to address some of those issues. Briefly on the free contraception that's been offered, should it be extended beyond the 17 to 25 year Absolutely it should. I mean, we fought really hard for the contraception for 17 to 25 year olds. It's a first step and it's going to very much um, focus on uh, non-emergency um, contraception. So the LARCs, the long acting contraceptions, and, and that, that is going to be, you know, transformative for people, but it's absolutely a first step and it will be rolled out incrementally. Okay, Nasa Horgan, thank you for that. And that is it from us. My thanks to Alona Duffy, um, who also joined us. All of our guests, our programme is available as a podcast. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. But from all the late team here, good night and take care. a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.